0: Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm your host, Keith Poston. As you know, each show we focus on a central topic. This week, is Expanding Educational Opportunity in North Carolina. That's the title of the just released report and action plan from the Public School Forum of North Carolina. Its latest study group, the 16th such effort for the forum, sought to answer the question, what would it take to ensure all North Carolina children have the opportunity for a sound basic education? We'll explore the key findings and recommendations with the leaders behind the study study group. Before we tackle each show's main topic, we open with with a segment that we call Edlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. Like so many homes and businesses, North Carolina's public schools were not spared the wrath of Hurricane Matthew's floodwaters. At least 35 school districts were closed due to flooding and storm damage, some more than a week. Some of the hardest hit school systems were Robinson Pitt, Duplin, Wayne, Lenore, and Edgecombe. Five UNC campuses were also affected by Hurricane Matthew. East Carolina and UNC Pembroke remained closed more than a week after the storm struck. Elizabeth City State, federal state and UNC Wilmington were also affected. This week, the National NAACP ratified a call for a moratorium to be placed on charter school expansion. Now, according to the NAACP, this move was more about supporting public schools than an ideological opposition to charters. The NAACP is calling for charter schools to receive the same level of oversight civil rights protections and provide the same level of transparency that we require the same of from traditional public schools. Two news reports out this past week say the McCrory administration will be looking for a 2 percent reduction from North Carolina public schools next year. The North Carolina Department of Public Instruction is considering ways to cut 2 percent from its 2017-2019 budget, or about $173 million. In response to a directive from Governor Pat McCrory's chief budget officer, It was reported that Guilford County schools would lose an additional $8 million in state funding if these cuts occur. And finally, students in high-performing countries uh, for math are less reliant on memorization strategies than their peers in lower-performing countries. This is according to a new study by the organization that administers the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, exams. U.S. students fell just above the average in using memorization. Now, what the study found was that students are less likely to use memorization strategies if they have positive attitudes, are motivated and interested in problem-solving, and are confident in their math abilities and have little or no anxiety toward math, which may explain why I relied heavily on memorization. Sorry, Mrs. Horton. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, Click Education Matters and read more about each of these headlines as well as other topics that we cover each week. Now, as I said at the top of the program, we're going to focus today on expanding educational opportunity in North Carolina. First, a little background that's important. In a court case called Leandro, the state Supreme Court determined that every child in our state has a constitutional right to a sound basic education and that the state was not meeting that standard. The case, which is still active and presided over by Judge Howard Manning, has long focused on three key factors that make for successful schools. Effective teachers, effective school leaders, and the resources to adequately serve every child. Now what the public school Forum's 16th study group sought to do was to put these factors in context. When we look at the challenges effective teachers and leaders face every day, what would it really take to help them ensure that every student in North Carolina has the opportunities guaranteed to them in our Constitution? What the forum identified were three key areas for deeper analysis, and you can find them on our website by looking at ncforum.org educational opportunity. It's racial equity, childhood trauma and learning, and chronically low performing schools. Now, I sat down with the co-chairs of the study group last week to discuss further. Take a look. Education Matters is on the campus of North Carolina State University this week. We're here in the James B. Hunt Library in what's known as the Emerging Issues Commons uh, here on Centennial Campus. And I am so honored to be joined by two of North Carolina's most distinguished leaders in education. We have Dr. Dudley Flood and Dr. Michael Pritty. Uh, Dr. Flood and Dr. Pritty just recently co-chaired study group 16 that was completed by the public school forum of North Carolina that was released this week. And we're here to talk to them about the findings and and what's next. But, Mike, I want to ask you first, how did the public school forum arrive at the central topic in terms of educational opportunity and and then evolve into uh, the three areas that you really drill down into?
1: The, um, The work of the forum extends over 30 years. About 10 years ago, we looked at something called the Leandro decision, and that was to help us define what an educational opportunity looks like. We have discovered 10 years later that we're still wanting and trying to achieve that. But it's more than just great teachers, great principals, and sufficient resources. We have to look at the students. We have to look at what they're facing. We have to look at the culture of our state. And we have to look at some structural or systemic issues that are affecting what's going on in the communities and in the schools.
0: Right. Uh, Dudley, you were working on um, desegregation issues uh, more than 40 years ago. Uh, And now here you are co-chairing a study group report that focuses on racial equity as one of the areas. Um, I mean, uh, I guess what is your reflection on the fact that we're still dealing with this issue of race and, and, and equity and equality in education?
2: My thought is that we're really looking at a different thing than we looked at 40 years ago. We were actually looking then at desegregation of the schools, and that was a legal matter. It really meant that you had to get in compliance with the laws of the land, primarily the Supreme Court decisions. But now we're looking at something much more intense than that. We're looking at having done that, how do you integrate the schools? Integration is very different from desegregation. It includes a lot of mindsets and a lot of dispositions, a lot of retraction from folkways and mores that used to be in vogue, a lot of developing equal status relations, a lot of modifying curricular offerings and modifying approaches to education. So it's much more difficult, much, more, uh, much broader in concept. So I feel quite gratified that we've now taken on that leg and realizing that we completed the first leg pretty successfully, Mm -hmm. but the second leg is critical for education.
0: Now Mike, you entered the classroom about 40 years ago, really the same time that uh, Dudley was dealing with the issues for the state on uh, desegregation. Some reflections on how things were then, uh, what you've seen evolve over that period of time.
1: I think the, the biggest evolution over the 40 years that I've experienced is we're more inclusive. Uh, Back in the 50s and the 60s when I was a student, um, lots of kids left early to go to work. We call them dropouts today. Uh, But they had jobs to go to, and they were good jobs. Uh, Beginning in the 70s, we began to include all of our children in regular classrooms. We began to try to include all children's families in the schools, not just uh, sending there to uh, be educated by someone else, but to make it a a more extensive relationship. Uh, We've succeeded in a lot of ways, but what I think we have found is that with some of the changes in our society, particularly the economy, it's affected our ability to help every child achieve his potential to the degree that we promised. We know what to do, but we haven't figured out quite how to do it with every child. Now, one
0: of the areas that the study group um, looked at was the issue of childhood trauma and trauma and learning. Now, the research is new in that area, but the issue itself is not new. Uh,
2: Those children, many of the children who were traumatized, if you will, uh, were were not taken seriously at that. They were thought to be troublemakers. They were thought to be inattentive, all sorts of things. And now that we've defined that population, and it's larger than we've determined it to be, and we're now serious about finding solutions. How do you give that child the same quality education that you give any other child?
0: Now, over the 40 years that you've been involved in education in North Carolina, you've, you've seen a lot of solutions and, and seen things um, that the state has, has tried to do to improve education. Uh, you know, so what, are you seeing things that are different, things that we should be trying differently than we're doing today?
1: We've had some really strong leadership in North Carolina in public education. And I wouldn't want to omit anyone, but I do want to single out some leadership at the state level in the mid-80s. Dudley was in the department at that time. Our superintendent was Craig Phillips. We did some work to envision what it would take for every school to have the resources they needed. We called it the basic education program. (laughs) If we had been able to fund that 30 years ago, I think we'd be at a different point in time right now.
0: And, and for the last question, really for both of you, um, you know, what success look like? You're rolling out this report. What do you hope to happen?
2: The fact that it exists is the first stage of success, as far as I'm concerned. You have to define a problem before you can solve it. And the greatest problem I've ever run into in my work is what I call the problem of no problems. People continue to say, "I don't, that's not a problem, that's not a problem. To acknowledge it as being something we need to work at, we're there now at least the report will have us there.
1: Do you agree, Mike? Well, if Dudley says it, I always agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I'm gonna illustrate with a specific again. I think Judge Howard Manning has done a really good job of helping many people understand the fiscal responsibility for what needs to be done in the schools. I think what this report does is talks, talks more about who the people are in the schools, the students and the teachers. Part of our report focuses on low-performing schools. We know how to make them high-performing, but it's like a hospital or a business. It takes investments and resources. Well,
0: thank you both for being here. Uh, it's
1: important thank work. You.
0: And um, I'm, I'm glad to visit with you and talk to you about it today. Thanks mm-hmm. so much. Thank you. Up next, we are going to dig a little deeper into the issues of race equity and childhood trauma and learning with two terrific guests. Now, as we go to break, See if you can answer this question. How often are African American boys in North Carolina's public schools suspended compared to their white classmates for the same offense? Welcome back to Education Matters. In the first segment, we talked to the two Educational Opportunity Study Group co-chairs. Now we're joined by two guests who helped lead the work on childhood trauma and race equity. We have Dr. Katie Rosenbaum. Katie is at Duke University. She is the uh, research scientist with the Duke Center for Child and Family Policy. And we have James Ford, who's with the Public School Forum of North Carolina, also was our North Carolina Teacher of the Year in 2014. Thank you both for being here. Now, Katie, I'm going to start with you. Um, Just so we can level set the conversation for our viewers, what is considered childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences?
3: Well, Keith, um, trauma is really a person's reaction or their response to something in their life that's really scary, stressful, frightening for them so much that it overwhelms their ability to cope with it. And that can be something that happens one time but is really significant for them or it can be something that's ongoing and just kind of happens over and over and really wears down their their ability to cope with it. And that can range from you know violence experiences in the home, child abuse, domestic violence, um, violence in the community as well, Or it could be just the ongoing impact of poverty, not knowing where you're gonna have your next meal, not knowing where you're going to sleep the next night. It could also be um, dealing with a parent who's not there, someone who is your attachment figure but has been incarcerated, has been deployed overseas, or maybe someone who's dealing with um, substance abuse or mental illness challenges. And even it could be something that is a one-time trauma but is really significant, for example, the Hurricane Matthew. Okay. So kids not knowing where they're gonna be the next day, right. where their house is gonna be.
0: Now, well, why do we need to understand um, the, what kids are going to when it comes to education? I mean, Why is that important?
3: Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's so important because trauma has an enormous effect on kids' development. And it it affects their development in um, their relationships with people, in their ability to cope with their feelings, and in their behavior in the classroom, as well as their ability to learn. And really what happens is a brain-based reaction where kids become so much more sensitized, they're scanning their environment all the time for something dangerous that might be out there. Mm -hmm. And when they see it, they're gonna go really quickly into something that we call fight, flight, or freeze. And what's gonna happen is a kid that looks that goes into a fight response they're going to look they're going to be angry they're going to look defiant and a teacher's going to look at this kid and think this is a bad kid this is a kid i need to punish and actually it's a hurting kid
0: and that's kind of what we heard dr flood mention in the first is that sometimes those kids were just seen as bad kids or troublemakers and and the the, the school's need to be better equipped well james let me ask you now race equity racial issues in america in schools pretty complex stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but what, what most surprised
4: you in, in digging into the issues of race equity as part of the study group? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I mean, there's a deeply entrenched history there uh, in the relationship between race and education. So some things were predictable and other things weren't. But wh- I have to tell you, what was really striking was the contrast uh, between the over-representation of students of color with the underrepresentation of students in programs like academically and intellectually gifted, so you take Black students in North Carolina are sort of the one subgroup demographic that's overrepresented, and the areas that they're overrepresented are are mostly cognitive in nature. Uh, but then they're drastically African Americans and Hispanic students drastically underrepresented when it comes to identifying students who are who are intellectually and academically gifted. So there's a very dangerous narrative that undertoes that uh, when looking at some of the data. So what do the what things can the schools or the District do come to, to immediately address some of these things, like we saw on the break about the uh, discipline disparity, for example. Yeah, so the racial equity is a mile wide and several miles deep, right? I mean, there's just so much there uh, in spanning that. But things that could happen most immediately are with discipline disparities first, being transparent about your data, uh, both from a school level, a district level, and of course at a state level, looking at and publishing your reports or your disciplinary uh, infractions and breaking it down into category and then looking for those gaps and making sure that it's. Uh, Available for public consumption. The second thing I would say is making sure that you uh, train teachers, uh, train administrators, and implicit racial bias. I think what undergirds a lot of these things is not an intentional or malicious attempt to uh, malign students of color. It's an unconscious thing that's a product of our socialization, and everybody, uh, you know, is a part of that. So there's some there's some recommendations
0: um, across this uh, study group report. What should policymakers, when they look at, say, in this
4: race equity, uh, what should they be? thinking about. So the the wonderful thing about this report is that It takes a complex issue, one that's hundreds of years old and attempts to produce some recommendations that can hit the ground running right now. So policymakers should look at it uh, from three different levels, those who create policy at the school level, at the district and at the state, and say, what pieces of these can I implement within my sphere of influence? There are some levers that could be pulled by the administrator, some things that are just a matter of changing the way the school approaches a particular issue. There are some things that the school board uh, or, uh, you know, the superintendent can do. Um, So every... uh, or every, every policymaker, rather, should be able to look at that document and ask themselves, where could I insert myself Or so we'll be able to take this information and insert it in my institution? Kate, did you see
0: the same thing in terms of childhood trauma? There are things that um, well policymakers can do, but there's also things that can be done right now, like, like a school could start operating differently.
3: Absolutely. You know, I think the most important thing that a school can do is find ways to make the climate a safe one for kids. Kids need to feel safe emotionally, physically, and academically so that they can relax and start to take in the learning. They can't learn if they're nervous and they're looking around for danger. So just, I mean, simple things like how you welcome a child in the morning and just, you know, welcoming them with a smile and, and really caring about how they're doing. Well, this is this is
0: day. important work. Uh, what, what you've done, um, I, I think, is starting a very important conversation. So thank you both for being here for this conversation. Absolutely, uh, it's, it's great Thanks to Thanks so much. In. When we come back, we're going to uh, the headquarters of the North Carolina PTA for our leadership spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. These leaders could be principals, superintendents, people from the community, business people, parents, really anyone demonstrating leadership for our schools. This week, it's Kelly Langston. She's the president of the North Carolina Parent Teacher Association. Leadership Spotlight is presented by the Borough's Welcome Fund. Advancing biomedical science by supporting research and education.
5: You know, I started, I have four kids. Um, our our oldest two are in college, and then I've got one in high school and one in middle school. So I would be lying if I didn't say that that's what started me in the PTA. I wanted to be that mom that knew what was going on in my kid's life. Um, I got in the classroom and I got mad. Uh, the disparities were just glaring and it, it made me angry. So I thought um, I had to do something, and PTA was just a natural place for me to get involved. A lot of people think that when you say PTA, it's like, oh, they're fundraising.
3: No, we do not advocate fundraising at all. We know you need money to run a program, so yeah, you have to fundraise. But our mission is to advocate for children, all children.
5: It's, you know, we hear this all the time. It's the, it's the level, it's, it's what levels the playing field. It's, it's what gives kids an opportunity that they may not otherwise have. And I feel so strongly in, in making sure that every child has access to that. They can come in from different backgrounds with different resources, but when they're in that school building, um, they're equal, they're the same, and, and that matters to me. Well, I've known Kelly for a little bit, and we met on the uh, state PTA, and she is,
3: I must say, outstanding. The, The amount of time and energy that she puts into
5: what she does for PTA is something I couldn't do. Public school has the ability to really change outcomes for all kids. People don't understand the huge benefit and the huge game changer public education can be. What makes me feel good is knowing at the end of the day that our kids are in a better place and um, that's what I think motivates me every day, knowing that we really are making a difference.
0: Our state is fortunate to have leaders like Kelly stepping up for our students. If you know someone who deserves to be recognized, visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. Each episode of Education Matters ends with a final word. The release of the public school forum report on expanding educational opportunities seems particularly timely given the devastating impact of Hurricane Matthew in eastern North Carolina. Sadly, that part of our state that received the brunt of Matthew's floodwaters is also an area of our state where we tend to see all three focus areas of the study group represented at a higher rate than anywhere else in North Carolina. Racial inequities, traumatic childhood experiences, and chronically low performing schools. Now look, I love Eastern North Carolina. It's home. It's it's truly a wonderful place filled with strong, hardworking people with areas of growth dotting the landscape. And it's where you find the only real barbecue in North Carolina. But it's also an area that has never really found its place in the new economy. Did you know if we were to divide our state along the I-95 corridor, something Matthew literally did, and made Eastern North Carolina its own state, it would be the 51st poorest state in the union? In the neighborhood I, where I grew up in, in Fayetteville, it used to be anchored by three textile mills. My family worked in them. And then one day there were just two. And then there was one. And then there were none. That story repeated itself all across eastern North Carolina, with major factories and good jobs disappearing, along with the tobacco and related businesses. You see, there really are two North Carolinas. It's not easily defined, like east and west, or even urban and rural, but it is a state where some of our children are, are getting the sound basic education promised to them and some are not. Too many children live in poverty and suffer from adverse childhood experiences and undiagnosed social and emotional problems. Our schools are not adequately equipped to help. Too many of our students of color find themselves on the wrong end of educational opportunity, treated differently when discipline is administered or when academic opportunities are made available. Some students, but not them. And students of color with emotional scars often show up in high numbers in our lowest performing schools who are typically the lowest funded ones, plagued by high teacher turnover. We have to get serious about addressing these problems. One thing for sure, most solutions have been proven require additional resources and commitment over the long haul, not quick fix schemes. Hard things are hard. Our state can't survive if we thrive. There are large swaths of our state left behind. That's it for Education Matters this week. Please come back and see us next week when we'll talk about the $50,000 question, teacher pay.